We're going to continue our sermon series called Being the Church, and we've been talking about it. I keep going back to something that J.C. Harrison said, that we are heading toward Corinthians 13, 1 Corinthians 13, which we all know uh, very well. And you can very much feel the text building to this uh, this teaching, and this morning it continues that uh, ascent, I would say, this, this journey upward toward what it means to truly be the church of Jesus Christ and how we do that practically. So hopefully it's been a blessing to you to unpack it. We spent quite a bit of time here, but I find it really interesting that we all become interpreters of what church looks like. This is why we spend a lot of time in family Bible talking about this, about how we're structured, about what the Bible says, and about uh, modeling that for other people. Because you may be like me, and there are, and, and we experience this a lot, there are so many different demonstrations of what church looks like. We want to continue to go back to the scriptures and say, well, what does the scriptures say the church looks like? And then how ought we to look? Often we think that we have it figured out. I love that we don't think we have it figured out, but we're trying to figure it out as we go together. And so we've been talking about that for a while. You become the model then of what it looks like to someone. A couple of people we talked about like last week, remember the, the Jews and the Gentiles and then the uh, church. And so you become a demonstration to other people in your life, non-believers, religious people, I should say, start with them, then non-believers, and then believers. We become models for what it looks like to be the church of Jesus Christ. And they to us, right? So we should be paying attention to that and sharing in this. So that's what the series is about, how to practically do that from the letter to the church in Corinth. But today, Paul has been kind of saying, and now for the reason you wrote, and this issue, and this is the first time that he kind of takes the to fight to them in a way, right? He's like, and now I have an area that I don't have praise for you in. So it's something we should pay attention to, right? All this stuff he's been kind of teaching and answering questions. This is my doctrine on this, and this is what should be, and this is the way it is. But in this case, he says, now there's an issue that I'm going to raise with you that you may not even be aware of. It's a problem that you have. And that's what our focus is today. Uh, we titled this communion because you'll recognize this as the words that we say every time we share communion. But I want to, we're going we're to start talking about what communion means. Uh, Dale, something about, uh, what did you mention, Dale? It was sacraments, right? And there's all this kind of conflation of terms, and, and it's fair enough. But we're going to talk about why we call this communion and what it means uh, when we gather together. But we're going to do what we always do. We're going to start with prayer. We're going to pray that God would give us revelation, not just like I'm not praying that God would reveal himself to me because there's no point in that other than for my own edification, but God would reveal himself to us. That means if you're in this room or you're listening right now and you're hearing this, that God has revelation for you and we ought to be attentive and listening to what he would have to teach us. This is one of those principles that we find in scripture that God himself is our teacher and we ought to be attentive attending to his teaching. So I'm going to ask you to do that with me. Join me in prayer. Father God, we thank you so much for the opportunity we have together to be uh, joined in your name. To, I'm reminded this morning, Father, how we're gathered in this place for your name's sake. And you, you make a promise to us, Father. You say, where two or three are gathered, I am there with you. I'm amongst you, Father. And, and we know that's true. Father, would you teach us today? Would you get into our lives, maybe in a really uncomfortable way? Would you dig around in there to make things right. Lord, uh, we confess that we have no path forward of our own. We have no human ability or even aspirations, Father, to pursue you of our own. And yet you have inborn us with your spirit that we could pursue you in this life. What a joyful pursuit you've given to us. Father, this morning I pray that we would be attentive to that joy in following you. I pray that you would awaken something in us, that you would deal with us and the things we need to be dealt with but we would just be made alive because of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And, and I'll make it clear to you, Father, that we've come to this place today for his namesake, 
for the resurrected Lord, for the one who died on the cross might be free, and for the one who walked among us and showed us the path to the kingdom of God. I pray, Father, this morning that you would do a work that only you can do amongst your people for your name's sake, for your glory, and for our good. Would you make much of yourself in our midst? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You might be able to tell I'm a little wound up about this this morning, about this idea. I've been studying it for weeks, but I've been thinking about it intently for this week and about how God promised to be among us this morning. I want to say again, I pray you don't walk out of here with a couple of cool things to apply to your life. I pray you walk out of here having experienced the very presence of God. And I don't know what that means for you, but that's been my fervent and serious prayer all week. So we're going to turn to 1 Corinthians uh, 11, 17 through 34. It's on page 799. I would encourage you to open a Bible and look at it. We got open Wi-Fi here. You can open up, take your phones out, your pad, tablets, whatever, and read along. I would encourage you to look at the scripture with me. Don't just take my word for it. And then let's hear what Paul has to say. Starting in verse 17 of chapter 11. In the following directives, I have no praise for you because your meetings do more harm than good. I told you that Paul brings now an issue to the church. The church has been raising issues with Paul, but now Paul's going to say, and now I have a concern for you that I've heard, that your meetings, I have heard that your meetings do more harm than good. I want to take just a minute to unpack this idea because the word there of meetings is the gatherings, right? The gathering of the people. Your gatherings are, are not doing good things. But I told you I would talk about where this idea of communion comes from. We're going to kind of knit this together by the grace of God. If you look back in chapter 10, verse 16 and 17, we talked about this, you'll recall, just a few weeks ago, and it said, um, it is it is not, is not the cup of blessing which we bless a participation in the blood of Christ. And that word there is a communion or a partaking together, a co-entering into this experience. So is not the cup um, of blessing for which we bless a participation in the blood of Christ. And then he says, and is not the bread which we break a participation. The same word there. It's koinonia, by the way, in the Greek, in the body of Christ that we participate. I've been saying that. I feel like for a while, I shouldn't say I've been saying it. The text has been saying that for a while, that we get to participate with God. That this is not a passive faith. This isn't an intellectual assent. One of the things I often hear people say about Protestantism in particular is, well, you think because you agree that makes you right with God. That's not what we believe at all. We get to participate with God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We get to enjoy what he has done for us. By the way, and this will become very clear later on. This isn't clear yet. You all know this. I don't mean we participate in our own salvation. I mean we participate in the gospel which, in which he saves us. We get to live out of the reality of the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so this word there, koinonia, means that we get to participate or contribute or we get to share we get to join in. And this is why it's not a spectator sport. Being a follower of Jesus or even gathering like this morning. I told you this story before. Maybe, maybe you've heard it, maybe you haven't. But one of the transformational Sundays for me is a Sunday where I showed up at a church and nothing happened to please me. And on my way out, I told the pastor, meh, it was okay. Didn't really do anything for me. And he said words that changed my life. He said, maybe you were not here today to receive something, but to give something. And I'll be honest with you, I never thought I had anything to give. I'm not sure I still do, but, but you know what I mean? Like, I was like, what? I can come and participate? And that's exactly what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 16. The, the cup with, which, which is the blessed cup which we bless is a participation in the blood of Christ. 
And the bread which we break is a participation in the body of Christ. We get to participate. I hope you hear that. And I'm not picking on you or trying to drag you into something you don't want to do. I'm trying to say this is where joy of life is found, in pursuing God and engaging the things that he's already doing. We don't invent something to do. We pursue him into this new life we have been given in Jesus Christ. Okay, so Paul then says, here's the issue I want to take up with you. Your meetings do more harm than good. And that's the first thing I want us to understand about the gathering, like even this morning at Family Bible Church, is this, that in communion, we can do harm. We can do harm because Paul takes this task very much to the people. He's like, you're doing harm in the way you're gathering together and the way that you're choosing to celebrate and the things that you're claiming to be the utmost importance. You're, you're harming people in the church. I told someone this uh, past week, we have been blessed over the years of Family Bible Church um, to be a place where people come who've been hurt by the church. But here's the truth. All of us have been hurt in church one time or the other. All of us have had someone inflict a wound be unkind or even be hateful, have evil perpetrated against, it's happened. And so the truth is that we ought to know intimately that our meetings can do harm. This should erase a sensitivity toward not bringing harm. As a matter of fact, Paul kind of juxtaposes two things. Your meetings do more harm than good. This means, I, I want to kind of break it out. This means that, um, and we're talking about what they look like, but it, that means that a meeting, a gathering of a, of, a, of a church not done well can bring about spiritual weakness in people rather than strength. You see, he says more harm than good. He's juxtaposing two ideas. More weakness than strength can come of a gathering of the people of God, which is terrible. It can become a worse experience rather than a better experience. That's a, that's a terrifying thing. Or it can become an inferior, an inferior reality in their lives and our lives versus a superior reality in our lives or experience, right? And so Paul says, I have no praise for you in this. In these instructions, I have no praise because your meetings are doing more harm than good. This ought to give us some pause. Paul's going to say how they're doing more harm than good. Let's read 18. There's four points here he makes. In the first place, I hear that you come together as a church, that when you do that, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it's true. No doubt there have to be divisions among you to show which of you have God's approval. We're going to come back to that line. But I just want to see the first thing he says is there's divisions in the church. And, and that's doing more harm than good, right? So, so Paul's kind of breaking out that as the first issue, that there's divisions amongst the people of God. The second thing, let's see here. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat, for as you eat, each of you goes ahead with your own, on your own without waiting for anyone else. It's this idea that you're being self-centered, self-indulgent, and you're having what's called private meals, right? Because he says you don't celebrate the Lord's Supper, you celebrate your own. You, you come for your own purposes into this place. That's the second accusation about why it's doing more harm than good. So the first is there's divisions. The second is you've come selfishly for your own fulfillment, your own meal that you're going to share. Um, one remains hungry and another gets drunk, he says. Yeah. 22, don't you have homes to eat in or drink in? Or you, do you despise the church of God? I feel like I missed one there already. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah, one remains hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you have homes eaten and get drunken? Or you despise the church of God? Oh, here it is. And humiliate those who have nothing. And so there's there's a, an attempt to embarrass someone else about what you have and what they don't. There's a sense of pride that's crept into the church. And, and it's about proving 
Now, this is dangerous stuff, right? But it's about proving that you're something that someone else isn't and in a place that it ought not to be proved or even try to be proved, right? We're going to talk about the antithetical to this because this is set up as one of the positions doing more harm than good. But there's this idea that you're trying to embarrass other people. You're trying to one-up other people. It says, do you not have homes eaten or, or, do you, or do you want to humiliate those who have nothing? And the implication is where? Amongst you. That there's a difference in the people gathered in the room. They're not all the same. They don't all come from, come from the same socioeconomic background, right? And therefore, when we gather together, we ought not try to embarrass one another by our difference in background. And then what does he say? And here, here's the result of it. Do you so despise the church of God? See that? He says, do, do you so despise the church of God that you would tolerate these things in your gathering? That's a pretty strong word. It's the result. It means to think little. Do you think so little of the church that when you gather, you do more harm than good? I told you to come back to that verse 19. I want to do that real quick here. Um, divisions in the church means a schism or a rip. It means a tear in the fabric, right? It means you take, you know, that's where they, they tear their shirts and they're, oh no, you know, they rip their shirts because they had blasphemed or thought someone else had blasphemed. It's this kind of rent. It's called renting or tearing something. And, and here's a quote. I, I, it says, um, I'm going to read the NIV here, the 19. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you has God's approval, right? And, and honestly, I thought that verse for a long time tripped me up. I'm like, that means he wants division in the church because it says it's a good thing because it proves that one side has God and the other side doesn't have God. Well, I started digging around in the Greek just, you know, because I do that. And lo and behold, it's, there's no, God isn't in there. NIV, God isn't in there. I always get, I'm always amazed when I'm reading a text and the word isn't there. I'm like, how did that word get in there? Get the approval of God. Here's another translation for you. This is from the ESV. In order that those who are genuine in their purpose or motivation among you might be recognized. That you, that your hearts might be laid bare. Why would there be divisions in the church? Because some of you are authentic and some are not. And divisions are there to show that the authentic versus the inauthentic. Ulterior motives. See, that ascribes right into what Paul's talking about. These divisions, these ulterior motives of being selfish, of, of wanting something for myself when I come here. Or this desire to be better than someone and to put them down because of what you have out there and what they have out there. And, and Paul is writing to a church and saying, I have no praise for you in this. No praise. See, the truth is we're going to share a table today, and we don't. Someone was in our uh, space, and they said, you, you don't have a, uh, what is that called? A, uh, not tabernacle, what is it called? It's an altar. You don't have an altar. And I said, you're right. We don't. We don't have an altar at Family Bible Church. I don't think theologically we're supposed to have an altar, right? I think we have table. Thank you. Think we have table. There's a difference, though, because this is the gathering place of the people of God. Altar is a place that sacrifice is made. There's a doctrinal difference here. The sacrifice is once for all. Christ gave himself already so that you and I could be free of sin. We don't re-offer. We don't need an altar. We have a heavenly priest. Read Hebrews. It's a beautiful text. But then we have table, and then it's like, well, when we have table, what, what do we, so we have choices to make. That was low table. Here, look at this. We're going to have, this is going to be, eh, I don't know, that's still pretty low table. This is working super good, guys. This medium table, I'd call that medium table. Let's see, do we have high table? Oh, oh. 
case you're wondering, this is our popsicle booth. It's also our sound booth before we built it. <laughs> no, we have table. The question is like, what is this table for? Who's this table for? Is it, is it a low table that we can all get to that the kids can, the little toddlers could crawl up there and get to the table? Or is this some high holy table where we're like, just, we can't get there? What kind of table is it? I don't know. Accessible. So, so we share communion at the table. We share it together. It's a place that we're called to gather together. We ought not be doing harm when we gather together in the name of the Lord. What does this mean? Listen to me. It means we should have extraordinary sensitivity toward those gathered. We should be on our best behavior, if you will, because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I was so discouraged. I was talking to a friend, and they said they went to a church, and they engaged, and they said nobody wanted to talk to me. And I thought, what a, what a tragic moment for the people of God to not say, yeah, come and sit with us. Let's have a conversation. Let's explore what God is doing in your life. Let's, let's talk about what we agree and disagree about, that we might grow together. See, there's a key verse in here that Paul says it's the antithetical to what the church had been doing, the meetings that did more harm than good, and it's in verse 20. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. He says, this is not your table. These are not your people. Let me tell you something. This is not your church. We often think that. Well, my church this and my church that. What? No, it's the church of Jesus Christ. Paul says, it's the Lord's Supper. And so we come together in communion. We, sh we eat the Lord's Supper. That's the truth. You see, look at the ownership of who the supper belongs to. It's not us. This is one of the reasons we don't have a closed table at Family Bible Church. We don't say who can and can't come to the table and eat. We don't say that. Not because we're cowards, but because we're not God. God is. You want to come, you want to receive, you want to taste and see that the Lord is good, you want to know Him more intimately, then partake. We're going to talk about that today. Receive. We're going to run back to that list. Remember, Paul said you're doing harm how? Through divisions in the church. So what would it look like to be the Lord's Supper? It would be unity. True unity. A gathering together in the name of Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, I'll be honest with you, one of the things that God has given me a passion for is, it, 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 it's a weird definition for church, but how crazy would it be if on any given Sunday, and we can't talk about the whole church in the world, they're gathering everywhere, but we can talk about amongst ourselves, if we have nothing in common but Jesus. If you looked around the room on a Sunday morning and you thought, I'm not like these people except for Jesus, man, that to me is a gospel community. I'm not saying we can't have some commonality, we can't have some things we share, but there's a tendency to do tribalism and, and invite people that look like us and, and invite people that act like us and people we're comfortable with. And the minute people that show up that don't belong in church, we get really uncomfortable. Why? Why? Because how awesome would it be if it was the uni unified gathering, the true unity of the people who believe in Jesus Christ, all other experiences to the contrary. What a radical vision for the church. And, and Paul says, you do more harm than good because it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. So you don't have unity like he would expect to see. The second thing is that it's the Lord's meal. I already talked about that, right? It's not a private meal. It's not a selfish meal. I remember one time I was in an event. I've never seen it done before. I'm not mad if you've done this in your life. I'm just so, so peculiar. It was believers, and they were having a, a wedding ceremony. They were getting married, and then they had all these people gathered to, to worship. I'll, I'll tell two different stories here. One was this. A couple decided that when they got married, their first act of love was to serve communion. I thought that was beautiful. So they took vows, and they turned around, and they served the congregation. 
praise the Lord. At least it's recognition of the body gathered. At least it's glorifying to God in whom the, the ceremony is being conducted in his name. But I, there was another one I, was, I went to, and again, it was beautiful, and I'm not mad about it, but I was so peculiar because in the middle of the service, they wanted to have communion, but they didn't want to have communion for everybody. They wanted a private communion. And they went behind the screen, and you could just barely see the couple and a few of the select individuals, and you got to watch as they shared. And I never felt so uninvited in my life. Why? Why would you make the Lord's Supper a private supper? Actually, the word here can be supper, or it can also be the Lord's feast. Because, you know, supper kind of sounds like supper. <laughs> like, let's go have some supper. You know, like, you know, Johnny, Johnny Cash, sup? Okay. Um, and, and so it's like this idea of, of, um, of eating, though, not just, but it's the main meal of the day. It's the most precious, wait a minute, it's the most expensive meal of the day. It's, the, it's not an ordinary experience, and therefore it's not to be private. It's a public taking of the Lord's feast. Uh, not maybe public is probably too far, right? But, I mean, it's not, you, it's not my own private, selfish meal. It's very much about what the Lord has provided for us. It's the most costly meal of the day. Something else interesting, by the way, is usually the evening meal. Remember the story about Jesus, right, and Passover. It was the evening meal. What's that mean? After the work is done. No more work. Time to eat. That's the Lord's feast. So that's the second thing. First, true, true unity. The second thing is it's the Lord's feast. And then the third thing is equitability at the table. And this takes some humility, church. But when you come into the presence of God, I don't even say come through the doors, because that's not right. When you come into the presence of God, there's not who has and who doesn't have. There's not rich and poor. There's not smart and dumb. You know, there's not like these people and those people. There's a, there's a people, and they're God's people, and it's true unity. I said to you, um, is the table a high table or a low table? Where is the table supposed to be? But there's this funny thing that God invites us to come to his table and get our grubby hands all over his perfect body. You know, some traditions say you have to be sanctified. You have to be ordained. You can't just, not, not just anybody can just share communion, people. It's, it's a, a sacrament. You, you have to have some, some blessing upon you that you can do it right because your dirty hands can mess this up. And man, the gospel that I know is the gospel that says, get your dirty hands in here and be clean. Could you minister communion? Could you baptize someone as a believer in Jesus Christ? Could you proclaim the gospel to someone who's lost? Yes, doctrines like Jesus is like, I'm sending you. I'm sending you to do this. That's what you have, an equitability at the table. Yes, we're all, invited, we're all allowed to be there. I would be remiss to say, if, to forget to say, at the supper, at Jesus' high holy meal, a betrayer was at the table. Like, Judas ate? Do you think Jesus didn't know? Do you think that was a, a mistake? Well, if I'd known him was Judas guy, I wouldn't have had him here. No. Get your grubby hands in there. Participate with God. Experience His holiness, even when it reveals our sinfulness, right? This is communion. This is sharing together. And then what's the opposite then? So if the first one is thinking little of the church of God, then this means to think much. And Paul would say that to take table with Jesus, to participate in the Lord's table, is to think highly of who he is, to think highly of who his people are, and to share together, recognizing his high holiness, right? It's not ordinary. It's extraordinary. It's not, you know, just a, 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 a supper, right? It's a feast, and we're invited to participate with him. Paul says that. God, no praise for you in this, right? 
one remains hungry, the other. So the opposite of that would be that everyone's filled, that everyone has something that, that you know, that some who maybe would, are used to having more would have a little less, listen to me, and that some are used to having nothing or a little less would have a little more, that there would be a commonality of experience at the table of Jesus Christ. Paul says, well, I praise you for this, this unity. No way. 23, read with me then. So what's Paul going to do? He's going to teach. For what I received from the Lord, I also now pass on to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, and he said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Because whenever you eat this bread or drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Paul writes this to the church. Do I have praise for you in your gatherings? No, I don't. No way am I going to praise you for this stuff. Why? Because this is what I taught you, what I received from the Lord. And I want you to see that real quick, by the way, that Paul received his instruction from the Lord. Okay, cool. Get it, right? You know, Paul was always the guy making a case how he is an apostle too, right? Because you weren't there, Paul. You were, you were one of those Pharisees. You were one of those religious people. You are one of those people trying to kill Christians. Now what? You think you can participate? What's Paul say? He said, because I received from the Lord what I have passed on to you. Paul has been taught directly by God. Wait a minute. Paul has been taught directly by Jesus Christ what it means to commune at his table. He knows the intimacy of relationship. He knows the power of God's rebuke. And nobody needs to be teaching him this stuff. Nobody needs to instruct Paul what the gospel is. He's like, no, I know the gospel. I'm a sinner. I don't deserve it. And yet Christ gave himself that I could be free, that I could be a new man, a new woman. Wait a minute. Born again because of God's great love for me. That's what Paul says. I received it from the Lord. He gave it to me. Direct revelation. A friend of mine one time said, uh, this is a great verse for us. Because lest you ever think you're left all alone, you're not. God is with you. Lest you don't know where to turn next, cry out to God. Pray to God. Because God is with you. He doesn't abandon us or forsake us or leave us of our own. The word says something to the effect that uh, in that day, I will write my words on their heart. I will teach them directly. No one will need to instruct them about the truth of the gospel because I will have instructed them in their heart to know me. This is what it means to be born again, born of the Spirit, not of flesh and blood, but born of the Spirit of God. And so we have this opportunity then to come together and uh, in and, and, and the Lord's name. And, and Paul experienced it, right? So he says, this is what I taught, that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, that means the night he was surrendered over, given over to enemies. You think you've had a bad day as a Christian, right? This is the day that uh, Jesus is given over to the enemies, uh, his own enemies. And it says, on that very evening, by the way, this would have been a Passover meal. You remember that? Jesus said, go and prepare the Passover meal. I've desired to eat this with you. And uh, the disciples go ahead and they do, right? And he says, um, uh, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. I want to give a little uh, credit this morning. We have matzah. Is that how that's said? Matzah? Yeah. Matzah bread um, that Dale has made for us. Um, to remember the Passover, to remember the way that God had delivered his people repeatedly, repeatedly from, from danger and from harm and from destruction, that God had been preserving, listen to me, for himself a people, that they would be holy and completely his. And the word says that that night, Jesus at the table, by the way, 
I said, what setting is the table on? It's probably a low table. It's probably the low setting, actually, to be, to be gathered together. It's, it's not that, is it? Why? Why? Why would God make, why would, listen to me, why would the Lord, you say, well, it's Middle Eastern tradition, that's what they would do, set on, why would he make it so low, like a coffee table in the living room, you would have to come and you have to sit at the kids' table to eat, right? Why? It says this, the Lord Jesus, not he was betrayed, he took bread, and it said, he gave thanks, the word is Eucharisto, where do we get the word Eucharist from here, Eucharist before, it means to give thanks to God for the bread, this is why you see this by symbolism, I'm not doing this, this is, but this is why we see this sometimes in services, and he said this, after he had given thanks, he then broke the bread, and he said, this is my body, which is for you, and then he says these words, and this is our next teaching, do this in remembrance of me, in communion, we remember Jesus, we remember Jesus. The main thing about communion and the most da damaging, okay, wait a minute, the most dangerous thing is that we would be able to participate at his table. We'd be able to put the wafer in our mouth and drink from the cup and never remember Christ. That's dangerous in the church. Jesus said, when you do this, remember me. This is what's called an ordinance, an instruction, an enduring instruction. So here he's at the table with his disciples, and he says, this is my body given for you, broken. Every time you do it, remember me. Remember me. Don't, don't forget who I am. And he says this, this is my body. Listen to the word, given for you. I, I can't believe how long I spent in church not realizing that truth, that Christ had given himself for me, that it wasn't a ritual or a habit or a procedure. It had no sanctification in and of itself. It had no salvation in and of itself. The act does not, but the reality does that Jesus gave himself for you. He broke the body, his body, for you. Make it one more point here. He's sitting at Passover with his disciples. He knows this is ahead of him, dying on the cross, and he equates himself to the bread. He says, this is my body, but he says it's given for each of you. What an intimate and powerful setting to receive instruction from the Lord. To remember Jesus is an intentional remembering, so as we wouldn't forget. It, you see, one of the proclivities we have as people is to forget. Why do we do communion on a regular basis? Because if we didn't, we could forget. We could forget to tell the story to one another, that Jesus died that you could be free, that he died that I could be free. We forget to remind each other that we don't deserve salvation, that we didn't figure this out. That he saved us in spite of our sinfulness. When we begin to think about the high holy table, we get to participate in those, those lowly sinners don't get to come here. Jesus comes to his community and he says, no, you're the lowly sinners. I've, I've come down to your level that you could taste and see that I'm good. So we don't forget Jesus. How would that even be possible in life, to forget Jesus? You think, how is that possible? God incarnate, forgotten by his people. It's the narrative of scripture, repeatedly. Look at 25. In the same way, after supper, by the way, that really says sup there. Okay, that was a Johnny Cass reference. It says, eat sip and eat sup. Come on. Okay, in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Here it is again, church. Do this every time you drink it and remember me, in remembrance of me. Don't forget me. And so he then brings the cup. By the way, this has been well said here, family, about before, but this cup wasn't the, there was a different cup. It was the cup after the meal, the cup of suffering, the cup of sacrifice, 
And it's a common cup that they share together. They participate together with the Lord in the Passover meal. But he says something different about the cup. He says, this cup is a cup in my blood. It's more than that. It's a cup in my blood. What does it say? As a new, this is the cup of a new covenant. That's a new promise in the blood of Christ. And he said, every time you drink it, remember me. What? A new testament, a new revelation, a new reality. And so he gives the opportunity to participate in the cup. He shares it with his disciples. And he invites us again and again to his table, his very accessible table, to receive, to taste and see, to drink and know, to indeed participate with him in his cup of suffering. This is a new cup, a new covenant in my blood. Do this every time you drink it in remembrance of me. Now one thing that you can't miss here is, and, and now we're into communion, right? But is this is a Passover meal. And this is Jesus saying, this is my bread, this is my body, and this is my blood. This bread and this juice, this bread and this wine is my body and blood given for you. But he's definitely tying himself directly into the lineage of Passover. Remember, Passover served two purposes. Passover um, served the purpose of remembering that God had delivered his people from slaveholders in Egypt. His people had been enslaved for years in Egypt, and God set them free. Remember that? He struck the firstborn in Egypt, and then Pharaoh let, his, let the people of God go, right? And they were able to flee in that moment where, where they, they got to the water's edge, and the enemy was behind the water's head, and there's no way. And then God made a way where there's no way forward. He makes a way out, and they pursue him. There's a second remembrance, though, not just the fleeing from Egypt, the escape from slavery that we've all experienced. If you know Jesus Christ, you're no longer a slave, but you're free. This is one of the great truths of the gospel. But the second is this, that in those desert seasons, when it's dry and you're parched and you don't think you're going to make it, it's bread from heaven. It was, a, it was a, a, a sustaining of Israel through the desert, even in their disobedience, that they might remember God's promises to bring them into the promised land. And so Jesus very clearly ties himself and he says, every time you do these things, every time you take Passover bread, Every time you remember that you're no longer a slave but free, I want you to remember the promises I've made. So we participate in the table. And I said we're a forgetful people. I just think it's interesting. Often, not always, but often, a big tragic event will happen and people will start wearing something. They'll say, never forget, right? Never forget. We'll never forget. And then like five years later, it's like a smaller crowd saying, never forget. And then maybe 50 years later, it's a few people saying, never forget. And a generation later, we've completely forgot. Completely forgot. See, this is a problem for us. And so Christ said, every time you receive it, every time you eat from this table, every time you drink from this cup, remember, remember what I have done. So we remember Jesus. Then verse 26, for, every, for whenever you eat this bread and you drink this cup, and this is what we're doing today, church, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We proclaim together as a community of faith, not as a nonprofit organization, not as a, a semi-business structure, as a gathering of people who are born again in the name of Jesus Christ. We remember again and we proclaim again the very death of our Savior Jesus Christ and his resurrection from the dead. We proclaim it together, a remembrance of the truth of what he did. I told you that the Lord's Feast is the most expensive meal of the day and there is no greater truth about the table of communion than it was the greatest, most expensive banquet ever served. Because it's not just for you, and it's not just for me, but it's for all people, for all time. That in the 
death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, God made right the faith of every person who had pursued him from the very first revelation to people at all. That God had redeemed them in this good, faithful uh, proclamation of the Messiah. This manifestation, this incarnation of who he is to us. God is not satisfied to leave us alone. No, he came on earth to live with us and then he showed us how to live and then he died for us. And therefore, when we receive the table, we proclaim to one another, listen, the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. But look, the death, well, we proclaim the Lord's death, what? Until he comes. Until he comes. This idea of proclamation, by the way, I love it because the, the root word is angelos, and it's the same as the angels proclaimed the Messiah to the shepherds. They showed up, remember, in the field, like, and they're like, you know, um, he's here, he's here, right? This proclamation that he's here, he's here. We get to participate with him. We get to join with angels in proclaiming the great and costly death of Jesus Christ. Listen to me, church. He died for you and for me. He died. I, I, I was talking to somebody recently and they said, yeah, yeah, I get it, I get it, the gospel. I'm like, man, please don't be bored with the gospel. Please don't get bored with the gospel. Like if we get bored with the gospel, we should go, go spend some time in our prayer closet because we ought never be bored with the reality that we get to proclaim to one another. Friend, he died for you. And I need someone to say, friend, he died for you. Jesus gave himself. Why should we proclaim it to each other? Lest we forget. How long should we proclaim it to each other? What does the word say? Until he comes. <laughs> so we're in this middle period, thousands of years. You say, well now, Bill, how does this work? Is this going to work? Guess what? Here we are, 2,000 years later, remembering Jesus. I think it works. I think it works. I think he's done his work here in the table, remembering him. Verse 27. Whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the very body and blood of the Lord. Against the body and blood of the Lord. So there's this warning now on the heels of, yeah, come to the table, get your grubby hands in. But then it's got this word in there, whoever receives it in an unworthy manner. And I'm like, unworthy? Oh no, <laughs> I'm not worthy. How do I, how, what am I going to do if I can't receive it? If I, if I'm not, if I'm not good enough for the table, if I'm not ready enough, if I'm not, this is a, a thing that people get onto. I, I got to be prayed up. I got to be confessed up. I got to know all this stuff. I, how am I going to receive it in an unworthy manner? This is what the word means. I love this. It means not recognizing the weight or the glory or the worth of the meal that is put before us. You see, I've heard that preached a whole bunch of different ways. You know, oh, you should act a certain, have some decorum when you come in. You don't touch the elements with your own dirty hands. You, the, 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 you know, the person puts it in your mouth or, you, you know, you, you just come up and you just wait. and You, you don't get in there. But the, it's to not recognize the weight of what God, the heaviness is the word there. Unworthiness. You think it's a light thing. It's a heavy thing. The, the glory revealed in the feast. That's how you do it unworthily. Yeah, whatever. Yeah, yeah, it's just a table. No, you've got to recognize it. Reading on, 28. Therefore, a man ought to examine himself, or a woman ought to examine herself, right? It's not gender-based there. Before he eats the bread and drinks the cup, right? And so whenever we um, have uh, communion together, it's a chance for self-examination. We get to examine ourselves. A man ought to examine himself before he eats the bread and drinks the cup. What does this examination look like? It means to test or to prove, to ask yourself in your own heart, why am I doing this? Do I recognize what's being shared here? We've had friends at Family Bible over the years who said, you know, we, we don't make a 
clear enough what's happening in the communion table and, and what if people receive it in an unworthy manner. But it means that you ought to know that this is the body of Christ broken for you, that this is the blood of Christ poured out for you for your sins, and that you ought to receive it in the, in the way that you understand that truth, that reality, the weight of what it took to buy our sin on the cross. And I have to confess to you, church, as I stand before you, I can't imagine. I can't imagine the weight of bearing my sin on the cross, but then I multiply that by all of you, and I multiply that by all of them, and I multiply that by all of time. We ought to examine ourselves. We ought to think deeply, not enter into his table. Verse 29, for anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord, eats and drinks judgment on himself. Or a couple more verses here. That is why many of you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we judge ourselves, we would not come under judgment. When we were judged by the Lord, when we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. And so the next thing is that when we come together as a community, we ought to discern the body. Discern the body, right? It means we ought to understand what's being had at the table. And I'm going to break this out in three particular ways this morning. The first is this. We ought to recognize our own body, right? I know it says discern the Lord's body. We're going to get there. But we ought to recognize our own body. We ought to take some time and examine our own state. And that means our sinful state. We ought to consider again our lives and how we're living them and the things that we're doing. We ought to think deeply again about coming to this table, the one who we call Lord, and then living our lives as if he's not Lord at all. And I'm saying this with you, church. We ought to think about that, the, the, our physical selves, the temptations, the trials that come in this life. We ought to consider them, our own physical condition, our own physical body. That's how we discern the body. The second thing then, we ought to discern the body, meaning the people of God gathered. We, we ought to look around and see the other people of God around us and their condition, the reality of who they are and who we are, the ways that they excel more than we do and the ways that they fail more than we do. And we ought to look around at one another and say, wow, this is the body of Christ. This is the body of Christ. Paul's already taught that reality. This is the body of Christ. So we should recognize his people in our midst. Or another way we can say that is we ought to recognize us in the midst of his people. Right? He's surrounding us with his people. And then the third, and of course, our highest sense is recognizing his body, his sacrifice, the price that he paid the way he laid himself down. The word earlier said he was surrendered. The night he was surrendered, he surrendered himself to death on the cross. And we've got to recognize, discern, see in this communion celebration, Jesus' sacrifice of his own physical body and indeed of his spiritual body of who he ultimately is as God for the sake of us, his people, and indeed for my own broken physical condition, my own broken sinful state. So Paul says then, the, the, if you don't recognize this, this is why many of you are weak and many of you are sick and many of you have fallen asleep. And I'm just going to break those out real quick here. It just means that many of you have a lack of strength because you don't see in the table the very offering of Jesus Christ. Then when we gather together, you don't see this as being something given for you and so you're weak in life. The second word is troubling. It means a perpetual illness. You continue to suffer and suffer ailment over and over. Why is this? I've seen this mis, misconstrued in church to go, well, if we get it right, we'll never suffer in sickness. I have 
I have words about that, but there's this reality that you stay stuck. It's perpetual illness because you don't recognize the table. We're going to come back and talk about why, what the opposite would be. And then a number have fallen asleep, and that literally means died. Right? Some of you are going to die, and you're all going to die, right? But some of you have fallen asleep. Do you remember the uh, disciples of the Garden of Gethsemane? The word says that they wanted to pray with him, but they were so grieved they fell asleep in their grief. They just were so overwhelmed they, they fell asleep. And Jesus came and said, why do you sleep? The hour is near. This idea that we should be. So what is the opposite of that then? So because so anyone who does not discern the body, then what does discerning the body at this table mean for us, church? And this is serious instruction. The first is, it's not weakness, but it's strength. It means that when you're all out of you, you get God. When you've got no way forward, when you hit the water's edge, when the enemy's pursuing you, you've got nothing ahead but God, God's self. It's power. It's strength. It's Jesus Christ himself. You see, it's not like a, well, if you don't, you're going to be weak. It's like, no, if you do, you're going to be strong. You're going to say, yes, Christ died for my sins. The enemy comes and taunts you with what you're struggling with. And you go, yeah, enemy, but Jesus died for my sins, and I'm strong because of Christ. I'm not lost in my suffering. But instead, the table, discerning the body, brings strength. The second is this, perpetual healing, perpetual sickness. No, if you discern the body, you get healed. You get healed. I want to tell you a real brief story. Early in my pastoral ministry, I wasn't even a pastor yet. I was just hanging out at church, and the pastor was out of town, and they, and they called and they said, hey, uh, there's a problem with the hospital. Can you go? The pastor's out of town. And I'm like, me? <laughs> you know who I am? And so I go to the hospital, and I see a woman I'd never met in my life because she'd been shut in. I wasn't, had never visited her that I could recall. I had visited with her husband. I knew him a little bit. And I went into the hospital room. And wouldn't you know it, I was there. I'm like, well, I'm going to see him. At least I know him. It'll be nice. It'll be not uncomfortable for me at all. And I walk in there. And he's not there. And she's there. And she's not conscience, conscious. And they've had a surgery. And I'm not saying this to take advantage of her. I'm telling you this is a testimony of the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ and what he does. Because... This couple had made a covenant to one another to never allow certain things to happen. And in this moment, this woman had been put through a surgery because her husband could not let her go, and it would be life-altering surgery. She would never be the same. She never wanted it. And on the wall over her head was one of those crosses, not one of these crosses. It was one of those crosses where Jesus is off the cross like this with his hands over it. And I walked out of there. I prayed. And then her daughter showed up. And I didn't know her daughter either. And I'm like, I'm just some weird dude. I know your father. I've met your mom like five minutes ago. You know, I did pray with her, right? And God was compelling me to touch her. I'm like, God, I don't want to touch her. I don't even know this lady. I'm like, okay. I just touch and I pray, God, would you? And then I see the cross and I go to walk and the woman comes in. I'm like, I'm so sorry. I'm grieved. And I walk out of the hospital and I'm in tears and I'm angry with God. I'm like, how could you bless this? How could you let this happen? You will not go on suffering forever. And I got in my car and I lamented all the way home. I hope you know that you're allowed to lament. And I lamented all the way home and I got home and I got a call. She died. Hallelujah. She go, what? She never had to wake up to that. Her husband never had to look her in the eye. He'd done everything. He loved her so much. And we grieved with him. But we celebrated because she's born again. And she's not wounded. And she's not disabled. And she's not disfigured. 
You see, this table is a table. We say, well, that means God's going to heal all of me, right? No, God's going to ultimately heal us. Who's the ultimate, you know, uh, uh, the ultimate obstacle is death itself. And this place, this table is a recognition of his body that we will not suffer forever. That we will not be broken forever. That this current illness will end and we get to live. And that's the third, not asleep. Not dead, but alive. You see that? We discern the body and we recognize that we are made alive in the table of Christ. We're made alive. Final point then, 37. When we are judged, and those are judgment things there, right? We get bored with the gospel. We're, we're falling asleep at the wheel. We're feeling weak and sick. Those judgments come. Those recognitions that we feel that way come. That we might repent and believe again the good news. Verse 32 clears it up. When we are judged by the Lord in such a way we are being disciplined so we will not be condemned with the world. And so in communion we ultimately avoid condemnation because we remember again the great and powerful gospel of Jesus Christ. This regular discipline from the Lord that causes us to feel like, oh, that's not right. Oh, it hurts. The self-examination before we receive the table and we're like, ah. Oh. But remembering also the body of Christ given for us is a, a gift to us that we would ultimately avoid condemnation with the rest of the world who rejects him. We come again to the table and we say, yes, yes, Lord. Yes, I'll eat. Yes, I'll receive you. Yes, I want to know you. Yes, I'll believe you. And yes, I'm going to be changed by you. We get to do this together. So today then, as we prepare to share the communion table, this table and this feast is offered by Jesus Christ himself. It's not our table. It's his and it's his gift to us. I want to share one thing here, and we're going to distribute elements. There's some mystery in all of this. You see, there's some reality that when you explain away everything that's essentially true, it becomes uh, a, a, it's less than the sum of its parts. But the truth is there's some mystery in what's happening at the table. And I just wanted to share with you Jesus' own words from the Gospel of John, chapter 6, just five verses, chapter 6. Jesus said to his disciples, I tell you the truth. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and you drink his blood, you will have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Because my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. Just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so the one who eats feeds on me will live because of me this is the bread that came down from heaven your forefathers ate this bread and died but he who feeds on this bread will live forever we have the gift given by jesus christ i'm going to encourage you as we prepare to receive communion to discern the body of christ i'm going to ask um a question then how do you do this how do you discern the body I think it's pretty straightforward. First of all, we recognize ourselves. We are sinners. We, we, don't, we have done nothing to deserve this. We've been saved by God. The second thing is what? We remember Jesus as our Redeemer. We know that he's changed us. He's given us new life. And then the third is that we proclaim his work for us, his church, that we get to participate with him at the table. Will you help us? I'd like you to come up and help. Will you help as our friends bring around the elements, oops, you're doing great. I want us to remember, church, the body and blood of Christ and his sacrifice on our behalf. We're going to 
receive the elements this way? You see, so often, this is the beauty. We think we're coming to table, table's coming to us. I will say this in all sincerity. If you, if you, if you don't know this and you're like, I don't know what he's talking about this stuff, don't feel bad if you don't receive it. But if you have been awakened by the Spirit of God, if you have sensed something in Jesus that you need, I totally invite you to receive the table. There's no reason you can't receive him as you're led. What we're going to do is after you have your elements, we're going to take, we're going to partake together once everyone has the elements of communion. So.